What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Evolve You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Brian McElderry, holistic life coach, business mentor, speaker, and author. And on this podcast, we deliver you exciting episodes, not only from myself, but other influential guests we decide to bring on to this platform. If this is your first time here. Welcome on. If this is your returning time, if you have come on and listened to many different episodes and you're like, hey, I'm, I'm here to stay, Brian, go ahead and give us that subscribe. Let us have a rating and review from you. Email us. Let us know which episodes you maybe have listened to that have impacted you the most. That being said, I love to welcome on our guest as we have today. Um, it seems like you guys enjoyed my guest episodes because you're tired of hearing from me, maybe. I don't know. But um, I love having good discussions and I love bringing people on very naturally from the conversations that we have. And I said, hey, this will be a great podcast episode to just hear different viewpoints. And a lot of the times it's maybe even the same uh, perspective or the same topic, I should say, but different perspective. So I love giving different perspectives from people's stories. And that being said, I'm going to welcome on my brother here, Mr. Cleveland Robinson. What's going on, man? Hey, good morning to you, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, on your show. I'm yeah. feeling all right. Um, but like I said, we're going to keep moving on. Overall, <laughs> sun is out somebody. Exactly. Exactly. So brother Cleveland here is uh, got a lot of area of expertise and I love his vibe because he calls himself the soul ambassador and me being an old soul myself. I love Neo soul. As you guys know, I'm always vibing to that type of uh, energy and really bringing in that positive energy from our elders and our our roots per se and I just got that feeling off of him and um, I'm gonna let him kind of take the floor here as far as his area of expertise with counseling and really helping our african-american community brothers specifically um, sisters as well but specifically brothers right Cleveland mm -hmm. yep so I'm gonna give him the floor just kind of tell a little bit about his story how he got into um, counseling, where he's from, and just kind of give us a little brief background, if you don't mind. No problem. So I'm Cleveland Robinson, um, your sole ambassador, as you said, in your neighborhood therapist. It's the moniker I, I use, and uh, definitely happy to be here this morning. I um, my passion for helping people has just always been around. Um, um, the foundation of it, you know, I'm a church kid. And so the foundation of um, uh, giving back to the community and being benevolent is something that I've just always done. And so as I got older, it, I had learned that it's something you could actually do for a living, um, which is how everything actually <laughs> um, And so, you know, coming up in a, a faith-based environment, um, very, very early I got involved um in um faith-based initiatives throughout the community i'm born and raised in florida um and so i got involved in a lot of faith-based initiatives around florida and then that uh went into community initiatives this is all before high school uh, during high school um before college um and then of course when i went off to college um at fisk university um uh, i began of course to stay in the same lane um and so my foundation was already in place, but like so many people, I've been around the world and back before I started really getting into um, really what um, And I think that that is one of the biggest um, talking points I give to people um, when uh, I am telling them my story 
that, you know, when you find your way back to what your purpose is, and purpose is such a big inflated word, mm -hmm. but um, it's the only appropriate word I can use in this moment. When you find what your purpose is, um, then it puts your life back into perspective. Many of you have already found your purpose. You just don't even realize it's your purpose. Mm -hmm. um, if, I think a lot of people are detoured because they don't think their purpose can make them a living. Money is important. Um, is. You got <laughs> so yep, I think that's yep. um and so uh when I when I get back to my purpose, um I had already knew that you know I could um make a living, build wealth, so forth on. Um, but it's not what drove me. Um I was working for uh, uh local government for a while in my um career and I loved it. Mm. Um it wasn't as fulfilling, even when I was working for local government, I would find myself doing more community work. And so after a long journey um, around the block, I got back to diving back into helping people. And um, uh, got back in grad school, um, um, went through my counselor training, and that began my um, journey of being a therapist, of finding out where my niche was in therapy. And as Dr. McEldry said, um, I eventually found my niche with um, black men, um, but it wasn't my initial niche. Um, my initial niche was I was just in the community, going house to house throughout the community, working really hard throughout the city of Atlanta. Hmm. And so that was the first five years of my career. Um, I've done therapy under a bridge, in shelters, in seedy motels, in the projects, in beautiful homes in the suburbs. I, in my car, I've done mm. therapy everywhere. Um, and that kind of got me on the path of saying, okay, what do you want to do? Most people thought it was kids. Now, kids is my specialty. Um, but as I've gotten older, my passions have changed. Mm. Um, and so I still specialize in kids and in children, um, in particular boys who have ADHD and anger issues. But as I've gotten older, I see that my peers and other uh, individuals who look like me, black men, younger and older, actually need the most help. Um, and that's how it came about. Um, and my rationale was simple. I work with a lot of boys, but most, of these boys anger throughout my career came from an issue that directly was correlated to a parent mm. 99% of the time yeah. when I began to realize that I began to say you need to work with the root of the issue yeah. and so um, it got me back over to focusing more on black men um, because black men are very vital to the black community structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so because of that, that is where my interest lies. And um, I actually um, met Dr. McEldery in that zone. Um, and of course, um, Grace Me, um, our last mentality, which is something I do once a month with being a guest on there. And of course, I'm here now. And um, so I'm sold out on helping brothers who look like me um, right now. And so that's where all my energy is going. 
Love it. I love it. I appreciate you sharing. I, I think the biggest things that stuck out to me and maybe in my audience is wondering, <clears throat> obviously people love to know people's stories and why they transition. So let's start there really quick. And, and what do you think as you begin to talk about passion and purpose and when you begin to come into that passion, that purpose of counseling, and we'll fast forward a little bit into your story. What was that point where you said, this is it? Like what gave you that energy from government work, uh, from coming up in the church, every step of the way, what gave you that kind of light bulb moment to say, this is it? Was it a moment in time of a, a child that you talked to? Was it a brother that you talked to on the streets? Was it something that said, this is it prior to maybe you going back to grad school? So that, that pivotal point, I think people are trying to figure out what in the world, how do I take that next step if it's in my hands, if I know what it is? <laughs> Although it looks different for everybody, my this is it um, didn't come as a, a, a epiphany moment. Mm -hmm. I came more as a um a self-realization gotcha this is specifically what i mean by that so when i first got out of college i did go to grad school for counseling my goal at 21 was to open up a drug rehab center okay so i at 21 22 i had already uh started my first semester of counseling school however i was young <laughs> and extremely distracted and so from 21 to 27, I was out of grad school. And, I, and that was the around the world phase. Mm. So during that time, I did work for a couple of drug rehab facilities. Um, I stumbled in the city government, began to work for city government. And actually, during that time, I got sold out um, uh, on working for city government. I actually liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I, um, I worked in the capacity of economic and community development. And so I found a natural passion for seeing communities grow. Um, it seemed related to me. And so I had made up my mind that I was going to be a community development professional. And so what happened was in 2008, December 3rd, I had got laid off because um, I was working under a grant. And so because I had got experience, I was at like three years experience by that time. So I had enough experience under my belt to go ahead and, 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 and uh, lily pad to another, you know, do a, do a little leap over yep. to another job. And what happened was for the next two years, I couldn't get another city government job. It never happened from, mm -hmm. from to now. Um, and so what happened was I, um, I had took like this temporary job at this juvenile detention center. It was horrible, actually. <laughs> I, I like the kids, but but the the, the environment um, yeah. was rotten, <clears throat> and um, I didn't have any more choices. Yeah, I, would, I was still focused on on going to finding a city government job. Mm -hmm. So I stumbled upon um, the military out the blue and that's something i said i would never do it just wasn't yeah. for me yeah and um, i was at a staff meeting and our facility was broke our facility was uh uh not broke down but um being renovated okay so we had an armory and i walked into the armory i had like a hundred dollars to my name maybe 
Mm. And looked around the armory, and I was like, I remember me saying to myself while sitting in that staff meeting, zoning out, might as well. Mm. It was out of the blue. And so I walked into the recruiter's office on break. And um, I actually didn't sign up uh, for the Army. I, I went to an Air Force recruiter, gotcha. uh, actually. And so actually joining the service, I was um, – uh, I went to a seven months of training then I came back as a uh, Georgia Air National Guardsman. So honestly, um, the military actually got me back on my feet. Mm. I owe a deal of um, thankfulness to God putting me in that position to discover yeah. it. And then, of course, him guiding me through um, putting me in a position to have a decent military experience yeah. that allowed me to get back on my feet. And so when I came back, it was a place where I was thinking a little bit differently. Yeah. And I still applied for government jobs when I came back. Because I was still focused on this is where I'm supposed to be. Yep. Long story short, I never got a government job, even mm -hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. And I got to Atlanta. And I remember before I got to Atlanta, I was in Florida. It was Halloween weekend, 2011. I was sitting in my friend's house and I had got tired of not hearing back from any jobs at all yeah. in government. So here was my moment. Um, Halloween weekend, it was November 1st. I remember it very well. And I said, all right, enough is enough. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I remember just my brain. Yeah, yeah. At that very moment, I got my friend's computer and started Googling counseling schools. So that moment, I gave up on applying for government jobs. Um, I was tired. And I said, get back to what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, during that Halloween weekend, to three graduate schools, um, I got on a bus, one-way ticket to Atlanta. A week later, I heard back from my graduate school. The week after that, they set up an interview. The week after that, um, I enrolled in graduate school. Wow. It was really, yeah, it was super fast. Wow, wow. I love that you, the reason why I took you through that, and, and if you're listening, guys, hopefully you're listening intently, that when everyone right now is searching for that one thing, that epiphany moment, that one moment, it's just like Brother Robinson said, it's, it's right in your lap. It's always been there, but we like to fight against what God has called us, if you're a believer, to right. be in, in who, to, who to serve. And I think that that is the number one question that I get a lot is really what am I supposed to be doing? And maybe you even get that with the young brothers and, and the black males that you talk to is saying, man, I'm trying, I'm trying. I, I just don't know how to move next. I don't know what I'm supposed to be necessarily doing along top of trying to be the best version of themselves as possible. So I want to shift into your area of expertise, which is obviously serving the African-American community and specifically black men. And I think obviously this is a, a prime time to really get deep into 
where we can all improve upon this and kind of give us your experience as to how you have been maybe consumed during this time and the questions that you have gotten as we're both black men, but obviously, like I said, I love to highlight my guests and give a different perspective. What has been your overview of prior to obviously racial injustice being brought to the surface, but as we know, it's always been there. You've been dealing with these problems. We've been dealing with these problems for decades, centuries. So what conversations have you been having with the young brothers and the older brothers as well, um, our black men? What conversations have you typically been having nowadays, more so never? Um, it's a general theme that continues to come up, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And that general theme, um, with brothers of all ages, um, about my most recent sessions I've had over the past couple of weeks, um, it's most of it's been between frustration, yep. um, anger, um, and depression. And the thing about black people, Mm -hmm. is that in general we're really resilient um it's a characteristic that i that i i think that many of the world just don't understand about the yep. black culture yep resilient. and so i remember a conversation with a brother he's in his 50s and he he was sharing about his just his lifelong struggle to uh as he's been he's seen racist things as he's um anger that hasn't been resolved um as he's dealt with you know strain strained relationships with his family and children and i sat back and thought about it i was like wow for decades you walk around with this mm -hmm. but the truth of the matter is it was, that was a pretty normal thing yeah that's a pretty it's actually, um, I think it's pretty normal amongst a lot of black men to carry a, a crap load of baggage that actually isn't meant, uh, like the words, it's not meant for human consumption. It yep. just isn't. Yep. Um, so my, you know, ironically, and I'm thinking back over the, over the course of the past two years, all my conversations with every black man that I've ever had has almost been the same. It's just packaged differently. And so over, so that let me know uh, through my experience that we are dealing with a collective experience as black men. The black boys I have, all of them, every last one of them, same exact issue. It's just packaged differently. Um, and so what we forget is those black boys become these black men that I see um, without intervention. That's the problem. Mm. Um, and the problem with that is, you know, we look at all of our social ills that we have as a society, whether it's the cycle of violence, uh, whether it's the cycle of a broken family, um, the cycle of prison, the cycle of miseducation, um, so forth on. And from the chairs that you and I sit in, it's not a rocket science to me why the cycle is there yeah it's like unlike <laughs> you know sometimes i kind of want to be like y'all can't answer this like it doesn't take high level analysis yep it doesn't take to see um why the cycle continues um it's evident we're not 
um, giving boys what they need. It's that mm. simple. Yeah. Um, yeah. Search report needed. We're not wow. giving boys. <laughs> um, and so, what have you been providing the boys from what they have been lacking potentially, or what type of legislation do you think we need? And we can have a discussion on this. And I really want to bring some questions up that we talked about. If you guys were not a part, obviously, many of my listeners were probably not a part of the mentality uh, discussion that we had about a month ago. But I think some of those questions were really, really good to bring up here. Um, first, resources. Like, what do we think we need during this time? And then what factors, obviously, are affecting black men um, from a racial standpoint and the mental health that you're going through? And maybe you already answered that, but we can maybe go into the mental health side of it. So I did my, my capstone project, which would kind of be like our uh, um, equivalent of a thesis yeah. on um, um, factors of success for African-American boys. And one of the uh, research statistics that I found um, had to do with mentorship and guidance. And so in the, in the human race, in successful cultures, there is a, a handoff of values. Mm -hmm. A young person coming up, I am an adult, I hand off to you a certain type of values and I teach them to you over time and you grow and there you are. I've developed those, you developed and those values are instilled and you do it over and over again. So when you are in a culture where um, a certain set of those values are not being consistently handed down, you have a disconnect. So in our particular case, of all the values that are taught in our culture, black men, father figures, which doesn't mean biological, but father figures have a certain set of values that they can teach young men um, about the things that they may face, about strength, about courage, about the importance of, uh, of education, Yep. about the importance of work, about the importance of entrepreneurship, so many things, um, especially the intangibles. That's really mm-hmm. the case. Agreed. When a, a boy is coming of age and there is no handoff of those positive intangible values, then of course, that growing individual reaches for whatever they can to create an identity for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so then that process is repeated over and over and over again. Boys growing up pretty much creating identity for themselves. Nothing is passed down. Nothing is passed down. And so guidance is the first thing that's needed. Um, It's not the only thing, but guidance is the thing that's needed. We must also understand that you hit on a big word, resources. Mm -hmm. So there are majority of African-American children who are raised in impoverished urban environments. Um, as we know, the majority of the United States population is only technically in specific areas. Most of it's on the Northeast, yep. in the East Coast. And 
um, our largest epic centers of uh, African-American populations are in a lot of these cities, Chicago, New York, um, so forth on, where there's a massive amount of urban poverty. We, uh, I think, get caught up and forget the impact that poverty has had on African-Americans too. Yep. Um, that's hurting us big time because within that poverty, um, that's a whole bag. Lack of resources, poverty translates a certain type of, it perpetuates crime. Yep. Um, it perpetuates a certain mentality of survival. And if you're in that environment for too long, that is what you will become. It doesn't make you good or bad. I'm saying it makes you a product of your environment. Exactly. And that's for millions of boys and girls. And so we have lack of guidance um, in those neighborhoods, of course, and across the board. Um, those, in, those families will be single parent households with multiple children, yeah. two or three. Um, the last time I saw it on the census, it was a decimal point. It was uh, a single parent household um, with 2.5 kids. So let's just say three. Yeah. I don't even know what 2.5 <laughs> Like. <laughs> So these will be single parent households. It's not like something people say. Mm-hmm. It's, re- it's not just research. It's the number. It just is what it is. Exactly. You have impoverished neighborhoods with lack of resources, with survival mentalities that only have one parent to guide multiple children at a time. So when people say the black kids are not at a, it, not at a, a disadvantage, that black children, um, or have the same opportunities as everybody else, I grit my teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that lets me know that you are choosing not to know the truth. Yep. Yep. So when people, because my, my audience is very much diverse, and I think the biggest thing, obviously, is we want to bring awareness. And we talked about this off offline a little bit, through our conversations is that why in the world do we owe an explanation? Uh, Do brothers and sisters have the energy to even have the ability to explain anymore about why this is bad? Because you brought up a good point. If they're choosing to not hear the truth and we want them to know the truth, and what I mean by them is any counterpart that's not willing to understand or does not understand or is not seeking truth, how in the world do we battle with our, our mental capacity um, during that time when things aren't getting done? So it's almost like we are obliged to put ourselves in that position to have legislative change. So it's like if, if the person with privilege, and if you're listening right now, we've hopefully have understood now many different terminologies or excuse me definitions of that word from whatever experience that you've had because people before didn't even think they had privilege in some way uh, but now they've understood a little bit better if you have some privilege and that person is not willing to utilize that and the african-american community males in particular who are trying to lead during this time don't have the energy where's the middle ground and this is could be a record i'm just kind of asking and throwing that in the air it's like where do we find the middle ground uh, to get things done to where we're all coming together to have some sense of a resolution to where there can be equality and maybe not even during our lifetime for the next 40, 50 years, but how can we leave that 
those values and beliefs and, and put it into the next generation. I'm not sure if that maybe sparked something oh, in you. That's fine. I, um, so what I've done, <laughs> it was a little unhealthy, but I, I needed it. <laughs> over the past week, mm-hmm. I have not done, um, the entire, uh, I'm going to use this as a framework, the entire Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. The reason why I want to use it as a framework is because the environment of the country is different now yeah. under his presidency. And so I'm going to use that framework uh, because um, we have seen things come about during his presidency, and this is not a for or against the president. So I don't want your 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 uh, listeners to get caught there. Yeah, I want framework because certain bodies of people and mentalities have began to emerge and get a lot of media exposure during the Trump era. Yeah. Okay, with that framework, um, for the past week, I have actually made myself watch videos <laughs> of opinions. I, honest to God, have never watched any videos in the past three and a half years dealing with any mag of this, any left or right, or I was never interested. Um, I am an informed voter, but I purposely avoid certain things, um, ingesting certain things with my eyes. So I did it the past week. And um, I was amazed. Um, <laughs> I, I I was amazed that people actually feel the way they do. Mm. Um, I've gone through such a range of emotions over the past week. I'll say week and a half. Um, one from anger. Then um, I remember having some moments of sadness listening to some people um, who are um, blindly filled with hate. Um, but because it's such a blind hate, they don't really know. Um, and I feel sorry for them. Yeah. And um, it, it's been interesting. And so as I've watched that, it's allowed me to formulate some ideas to what you just said. Mm-hmm. And my thoughts are this when it comes to privilege, which is what I've heard a lot of. Yep. Yep. I thought when it comes to equality and all of that stuff is that Privileges are going anywhere because what I have observed is that people actually don't want to know better. Um, it's better for many people to live in blind ignorance um, because it's comfortable. Yep. And so I no longer am focused on helping them see their privilege. Um, them is quotation mark. Yep. Uh, I'm no longer interested in, I want to help who wants to be helped. When it comes to African-Americans and our advancement, when it comes to equality, I believe actually the roadmap has already been printed for us. And this is why I want to use that framework. Mm. What does it look like? Over the past, so during the civil rights era, um, leading from the mid fifties to uh, the late sixties, we saw a framework that people put together. Um, And I think even though we hate saying it, uh, African-Americans were not the only sole leaders of the civil rights movement. It was a collaborative effort across the plane uh, for different things. 
And I believe right now in this season, we may be forgetting that. Yeah. So the civil was one of the biggest things that ever happened to our culture is African-Americans. And we reached across the aisle. We found allies um, of all different backgrounds because we realized two things worked. Economics and legislation. Yep. Um, we protested, and I believe in protesting because you need a visual representation of oppression so people can see it. So it's just three-pronged, and it's all been given to us. So I think protesting and visual representations are very important. I think uh, when oppressed people get tired, as in any country in the entire world, you will have riots. Um, they're not going to be peaceful because oppressed people, you can't tell them to be quiet because they're oppressed. It's, a, it's like a, a tea kettle uh, that's sitting on the stove. It's going to squeal and bust out steam eventually. You can't tell it to be quiet. So that's a big frustrating point for me when people say, people say um, you know, tell that to people in China, tell that to people in India, tell that to people in apartheid South Africa, like, don't, like, be quiet. Mm -hmm. be Tear up stuff. We know we got you oppressed. And we know that you're in apartheid South Africa. We know that you're uh, here in all these oppressed places, but just ask us nicely. Mm. Like, it, it it infuriates me. Yeah. But um, protesting, rioting, okay? So I feel like that's the first phase. Then it then it transitions. The Those are the catalyst phases. The productive phases yep. turn in legislation and economics. Um, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll close the thought here. I use two examples. I use the Montgomery bus boycotts as the pivotal example of what we need to do in order to see change in equality within our lifetime. We can see it. That's good. Yeah. Montgomery bus, bus boycotts. The city government of Montgomery had no interest in assisting African-Americans um, in equality. The African-Americans, the black people in the city of Montgomery forced them. Because after so long, people had to say, well, if they don't ride, our transportation system will crumble. We have no choice but to give them what they want. Yep. So before, this ain't that deep. <laughs> if we want something to change, and we've seen it, corporations recently have took a step forward. I know people feel some type of way about it, but truth of the matter is you need to flex your economic muscle. That's one. And then number two, as it is um, um, how we were able to reach across the aisle um, and get our allies who are in power to assist us, that's what helped. We need legislation and economic power, and we could see some stuff during our lifetime. Without it, no change will, will happen. And I believe yeah. that wholeheartedly. I agree. I agree. I love the points that you made um, in that framework that you had examples, but also you had a process. And I think people are always looking for a process because we can ramble and talk all day, but if there's not a one, two, three, four, five step process, whatever it is. So if you're listening to this right now, understand that framework that Brother Robinson just outlined was the writing, 
the protesting um, coming from oppression and obviously we have to have the economic phase and we have to have the legislative phase, which I think a lot of us are, you're seeing people see, see that, oh, everything's dying down. No, it's not dying down. We just shifted into a different phase to where we, we are trying to still have the, 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 the presence in protesting as we saw in Kentucky uh, for Breonna Taylor and that's going on obviously and many other protests are still going around the country and the world but there's a lot of us who are trying to promote voting promote legislation showing up to council meetings showing up um, and voicing um, different things that can actually change laws because i think that's what i hate using the term they but they whoever you want to picture in quotation is they whoever has that power or privilege to enforce these laws, we're, we're going to still be in the same place and we're going to get brushed under the rug if that those two phases, like you said, do not happen, whether it be in our lifetime or whether we set the stage for the next generation to continue on with that economic or legislative phases. So I, I think, yeah, I think that's a great point. So what what is, what is it during this time? I will kind of want to revert back to our uh, discussion over mentality. So guys, the mentality is uh, a monthly discussion that Brother Robinson has uh, a part of another group here um, in Dallas. And it's pretty much bringing on black men to talk about openly uh, the mental health piece and how they can get, grab hold of that. What have been some breakthroughs that you've seen? I want to, I want to share some wins. Um, for some, from some brothers that some positivity that's going on that you've seen happen uh, during this time, whether it be they've gotten hold of their mental capacity uh, to not brush under the rug or to um, suppress it, but actually to acknowledge it and accept that, oh, wow, I've, I'm, I'm in control of this and I can move forward within my family or um, my community. I'm encouraged um, by the... Um, after mentality conversations I've had um, for, with the brothers who've attended, the majority of them um, uh, expressed the sentiments that, man, I'm happy that I heard it. Um, mm. It's good to hear um, that I'm not the only one that feels a certain, uh, a certain type of way. Yeah. Um, it's urging um, to hear brothers actually um, understand the importance of their mental health and actually because we make it tangible you know it's like on when we have these discussions it's something that you can gnaw on it's not like highfalutin talk or exactly you know talking that's not how um we set it up um and i'm of course talking to your viewers it's and it's not even set up in a panel um mm. set up more so in a conversation exactly. of guys and we did it that way so that I didn't want to have the expert listener format. We wanted to have truly the round table format. You know, yeah. like brother, we're just talking about this is my daily life. I don't care if I, you know, had zero dollars or a million dollars. Like we all the same on this platform right here. Yeah. And so all brothers have shared, like, I think it's, it's, it's normalizing. And that's what's missing. Mm. Um, I, I am now, I've been in this space where I'm advocating for brothers to 
um, be okay with not pushing through. Like we push through everything. You exactly. Know I mean? Yeah, like you said at the beginning, resilience. Like we're gonna persevere regardless. That can be detrimental. It's so detrimental. Like I, you have no clue how many brothers I've talked to who are um, ticking time bombs. A lot mm-hmm. of folk don't know. Exactly. I who are truly, truly, truly one wrong moment in one conversation to making a really, really, really bad decision. And I know that my small microcosm is just a small, um, it, you know, like it's, it's a depiction of, of, of a larger space. Yeah. A lot of brothers walking around like time bombs because they have only pushed through their whole life. And when you, when you get to become a man, you know, like grown man problems. <laughs> grown man problems. <laughs> Financial problems. Family problems. And you're wearing all of that. And the only thing you do in the morning is say, okay, I'm just pushed through whatever. It's only so much. We were only, our brains um, were only built a certain way. Resilience, of course, is like a learned thing. And at the end of the day, there's a learned behavior and a learned tolerance that you build up over time, which is our resilience in our culture. But it has nothing to do with biology. And I think we're forgetting that. Mm. So for resilience that you have developed over time can only take you so far. Yeah. Biologically your brain is only built to handle a certain amount of something. Yep. Yep. I, I, I mean, I really, um, and you know, in the work that you do, um, I can't tell you how many brothers it'd be, it'd be, it'd be very alarming to me um, as a therapist. Cause I kind of, you know, when I get off these sessions, you know, when I encourage these brothers, I kind of be like, man, how many brothers are just on the edge? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's no way to live, number one. Yeah. Um, and then two, just think about that. You're walking around daily with saying, today might be the day I made that bad decision. Brothers know now. Yeah. You know, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, tiptoeing around. <laughs> And so I have been very happy through mentality, through our conversations. The breakthroughs brothers have had is they're realizing, um, like one said to me last week, man, I got to get the help or I just, I'm not going to make it. Mm. So I think that's been very important that brothers are now realizing, oh, I don't got to push through. Yeah. That don't make me not the same strong black man. That made me a man who's responsible for my brain yeah. to not have a breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you're you're focused specifically on us as black men, because I think there's still this misunderstanding that the whole African-American community or any minority is all, we're all the same and we all have the same struggles and experiences. And I think we talked about this on mentality is that, you know, every black man's experience is different, just like every black woman's experience is different. And the black man's experience from the black woman's experience is completely different in and of itself and the same different struggles as well. So Mm -hmm. I think there's this miscommunication and misunderstanding that, well, why 
why is there only a black men's focus group? Why shouldn't it be all men? And it's, it's still that misunderstanding. I can share maybe a little bit of mine, but I'm going to pose it and, and throw the uh, mic back to you for a second and just kind of give your perspective on what is it about the black man's experience in your eyes that um, people may not understand or may just want to hear from a brother uh, authentically and say, hey, this is, this is the mentality, all puns intended, that I'm going through each and every day that people may not understand. I know you shared experience um, on our discussion where, you know, you thought you were speaking a certain way, right? But yet it was, sure. it was taken a different way. You can share with us if you don't mind. Just kind of a couple of things that you maybe go through each and every day or during your lifetime. Um, well, what makes it unique is there has been a, um, a learned, even subconsciously biased uh, against black men. Um, it is unfortunate, but it is how it has been throughout time. When I was in grad school um, and I was taking my substance abuse course, um, we had learned, it's a very popular video on the history of substance abuse. Mm -hmm. um, and, and most legislation that had to deal with drugs, marijuana, cocaine, so forth on, came based off of the fact and propaganda that it made black men more crazy or more virile. And that is that conception of the black man being this uh, rabbit savage actually has been American propaganda mm. the last century, not in the 1700s or the 1800s. <laughs> mm -hmm. There was propaganda that went out about that. Um, and so that mentality and image has not went anywhere. One of the best places I ever learned about that uh, in a more entertaining way is uh, when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, one of my most, one of my yeah. favorite books. And um, he went in depth about um, not his opinion of how black men were perceived, but he explained um, even the criminal side and in the uh, when he was doing illegal business, how black men were perceived a certain way amongst white clients. You got to read it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Yep. But that was an ingrained thought that was put into people. And we say, where did it even come from? Who knows? But it's there. And so in my personal experience, I had shared before, uh, I've lost three jobs. Um, due to that same thing. Mm. And it was a eye-opener to me um, of how things can occur. Excuse me, two jobs and one opportunity. So the first the first job I lost, uh, I remember I was working in Florida and I had um, my, my supervisor, um, I was talking to a coworker um, about something I didn't like. My supervisor came to me. I told my supervisor, I said, I said, and I said, I think that I should be able to have my own opinion. And I did not agree with her, you know, so forth and so on. And remember, I'm talking to my supervisor confidently. 
I'm talking to my supervisor, uh, my head up, my chest out, the way I've been taught to talk, and I'm projecting. And um, she felt that uh, I wasn't a good fit for the team because uh, my tone was too aggressive. Of course, I'm bewildered. Um, <laughs> we are taught early. Uh, you look people in their face when you talk to them, and you you speak boldly. Yeah. Um, a clear, strong, firm tone. Um, yep. but it has been my experience in my working life that um, doing that, especially I'm looking you in your face and I'm saying, I don't agree with this decision. I believe that things, and I'm talking this way, that is threatening to some people. And so I've lost job opportunities too. Um, lost two jobs and one opportunity because uh, it was told to my supervisor on the second time that I was talking um, in an aggressive manner. I don't even know what that means. Um, I know what it means, but, but because of my personal experiences, um, it has always bothered me um, that people will act like those things don't exist. Yeah. Um, Cause you're not going to tell me that I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. I know what the report said. I know the jobs that I've lost. I know uh, the other sh- brothers who have had the shared experiences that I have had. Um, and I remember the last time um, that I, well, I was talking aggressively I purposely, because I was so conscious of it by that time, made sure, to my opinion, that I talked in a soft tone. And I, I remember, I don't believe that I was talking, but I was talking this way, and I always look people in their eyes when I'm talking. Yeah. And I still got rolled up for talking aggressively. Uh, th- that time they told me um, I was being insubordinate <laughs> because I did not. Um, but... I've had those experiences where it helped me understand, oh, there's a subconscious bias to some people. Yep. If a black man talks firm and confident, yep. that does not translate as confidence, that translates as aggression and insubordination. And those individuals don't know where that came from, but it's in them. Exactly. And they are cases the decision makers around that country and so i give that example to say yes those are things that black men may encounter yeah um, based off of our skin and our demeanor and don't be a big muscular tall dark-skinned black man and have those same type of characteristics whole another subconscious bias a whole another subconscious bias and so, yes, we deal with different things that other races will not deal with, truly, based off of our uh, affect yep. and the color and our disposition. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. And what people do not know is this historical context of the fear, and, or really it's reverted back to the lack of in whatever privilege the person may have in that writing and we may be talking about our Caucasian brothers and sisters in this moment because there's always been this fear that why why didn't we teach the black man to read and to write 
why didn't we give him or her the opportunity or the wrote the the right to vote or anything that uh would keep them suppressed and oppressed for a duration of time and those questions are really to me what i've learned and what i've seen is that wow you are really scared of being overruled or being mm -hmm. outworked or being outthought and where does that come from? It comes from this internalized viewpoint that you are not maybe confident in your own self or you have a lack of something. So, you know, it's hard when it's a other person's problem and that person still has rule or authority in certain areas over you. That's so, a really interesting point. Like, think about this. And, um, Another thing I had, the, my mom told me, let me say this, a long, <laughs> my mom, um, she's been an educator um, her whole entire career. Yep. And she reminded me, I remember this about 10 years ago. She said, you know, Cleve, you, she, she said, Cleve, you can't get frustrated with people um, when they don't know something. And because yeah. you take for granted um, you being a college-educated Black person. And so as a college-educated Black man who has learned things about my ancestry, I sometimes lead with the understanding that everybody should know this. I do. Yeah. yeah. My mother hit me to a long time ago that that is a bad misconception and thing to lead with. And um, it is because mm -hmm. it'll get you being frustrated. People, honestly, I'm not saying this is an excuse. I'm saying it's a fact. People really just don't know. They don't know. They even took time. When you're coming is, uh, I think, especially when you are an intellectual, yep. you... And I'm speaking a college-educated intellectual. I'm specific about that um, for a reason. Um, because, because college um, is supposed to teach you how to think. Yep. It don't work very That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's here to teach you how to think. That's, um, 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 and, it, 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 and, and how it does that is not through only class instruction. It's supposed to teach you how to think by meshing with your peers. Yep. Well. And so I'll give you for instance, and I'm going back to something you said. I, I want to lay that out first. Yeah. In the during the period of slavery, slave owners and those in power knew we cannot let them learn to read. Now, for those who Take just a moment. The majority of people don't, which is why we're having all these unproductive discussions about yep. heritage and confederacy, all the other stuff, which infuriates me. Um, mm -hmm. People won't because they're not able to. I know it sounds elitist, but I'm going to say it because I'm on Dr. McElderry yep. podcast. Um, it ain't elitist. It's people, not everybody thinks the same. Yes. Um, everybody 
wants to or has the capacity to think intellectually besides themselves for many different reasons, not because they're less smart. Intellectualism is something that has to do with mastering thinking introspectively. It's yeah. a learned different. So if you have not mastered that skill, you will not take a moment to say, hey, wait a minute. Even the slave owners knew that these Africans could overtake them if they just learned to read. Mm, they, that's good. They that it's only me and my handlers, I think it was another term for them, but the people I employed was only, it was only about 10 of us. But yep. it's 200, they weren't dumb. Nope. They were really smart slave owners. Yep. Realize that if they can read these laws and they can learn how to communicate amongst each other, yep, then we're in trouble. Yep, they so when I people in this day and age who support that era sound so ignorant and stupid, I even say, man. You really, you yourself, who's so happy your heritage, don't even realize how intelligent. Hear what I'm saying now. Yep. Your slave owner and racist ancestors were, mm. because they even realize the power of empowering a slave meant the end to us. Yep. We wouldn't need, wouldn't have needed the North. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> we would. So. There are certain things, you are correct, that were done because those in power already had the foresight to know what needed to happen for long-term oppression. They were real smart. They were real mm. smart. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Wow, 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 that's good. I'm glad we, we, we pivoted into that because I think that is something that is going unnoticed. And like you said, it's, it's something that should be acknowledged and something that should be brought to the forefront. So I'm gonna, this is a random question that I kind of had that I thought about really quick. And as we wrap up here, we both went to HBCUs and it's been a talk as of late. Um, and if you're listening right now, historically black college and university, okay? Fisk University and Morales College. Um, I do believe that my experience from my brothers and sisters that were at a predominantly white institution was different. And that now we are trying to find a way to save or bring back up that intellectual thinking because I do believe I got a lot of intellectual conversations being at an institution where we could have different discussions. Um, maybe you as well, Cleveland. I, I, I think that that openness to allow us to have this intellectual um, environment to be able to think. And maybe that is a whole nother discussion going back into what you just said is saying, hey, if we, maybe we wanna support the HBCUs, but maybe we don't because if we empower these groups of people to think at a high, high level in their own environment and they have resources, it's over again. So um, what was your experience? Do you have any context about um, your experience? Do you believe the HBCU experience is something that uh, a black man needs? 
uh, during this time or, you know, a lot of brothers are, are going through the sports route and that's a whole different way where they're obviously going to PWIs to play at the high level and uh, make their money, help their families. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, no so, um, it's a load of questions. So I can, I'll, I'll only answer it in this way. Yeah. Um, I road tripped, um, me and you are both, um, fraternal men. Yep. And, um, I road tripped to a lot of guys, um, and I, it, it helped me understand a lot though. So PWI, a lot of them, they have a black experience and they do within the confines of, if like a lot of PWIs I went to, like when I road tripped to Florida State, Yep. Uh, when I, I remember when I go east of Illinois, um, they, um, for, as an example, they functioned very closely within like their BSUs, Black Student Union. Yep. And that gave them a semblance of a Black experience. Mm. That is the justification that's always been given. However, um, it cannot be by default the HBCU experience because in a PWI you're working within a bubble for a black experience but you're still under the auspices of yeah. a PWI. You, you still have to go by a system that is not geared towards the success of African-American students. That's fact. Yeah. In HBCU it is geared to black first yep and so at fisk um you know um as many hbcs were extremely pro-black but were private schools so we were able like morehouse to be exactly. like we're here as an african american student who we are purposely raising and matriculating to be an african-american intellectual you don't have to be shy about it exactly to be an African-American intellectual and to give that black the, the end. That's what you know when you walk in, in your freshman year. Yep. And that's what your professor are emphasizing. And, you know, if we would have had any guest professor or a new professor talk anything contrary to that or um, had any racial biases, we would burn that bad boy down. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how we were like, you know, Try slip up if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we never coming back and you'll be gone because yep. your class. We were, we had this type of empowerment at Fisk actually. Exactly. Um, so you're in an environment where black pride, as far as it concerns being a black intellectual student that's going to go forth in the world is fed into you on a regular basis. One of the most Afrocentric teachers we have at this good, bad, or indifferent mm -hmm. actually was a white man. Yeah, <laughs> we had a couple of those at Morehouse, so I understand what you're saying. <laughs> and African-American study scores. <laughs> so there. Yeah. Um, and he did know everything about African history. Um, and so, um, I think that, as you just mentioned, um, for those of us who have long tenure 
white professors or none, shall I say, non-black professors, because it'd it be black people there. They are definitely, um, they're there for a reason. Most of them are in the know. Exactly. We had one German professor one time, and she slipped up because she didn't in African context, and we lit her ass up. Yep. <laughs> we only for one more semester, and she was gone. Mm. Um. After that, you know, it spreads. Word spreads fast. Yeah. And she had a of time. Mm. Um. And so, for us to do that, there's no recourse on us. Yep. Um, whereas maybe in another environment, you have recourse for lighting up a professor. We don't exactly. have recourse. Yeah, we didn't either. We, didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> we did not either. Brothers need it. Um, some brothers need it. You know, there are other reasons brothers can't go. But uh, HBCU does give you that empowerment to be like, okay, I can do this. Yep. I can be part intellectual and... This is where I need to get fed at. So sure. Exactly. Exactly. That can be a whole other discussion, but I'm going to lead, um, leave this open to you. I always leave my guests with a couple of questions and open the floor up to kind of lasting words for you. Sure. Uh, one question is simply, how are you evolving during this time? Um, how are you growing? How are you managing your life? How are you continuously uh, acknowledging what's going on, but maybe as you said, being resilient or persevering, but understand that it's not suppression. It's really growing through this season. So how are you evolving? And then kind of, you know, give this platform to you to share what you do and how maybe can people can contact you to discuss more. Sure. Um, so I'm going to switch complete, complete, complete gears. And just yeah. Take it to I like it. Um, how I've been evolving lately, actually, is I've been looking at my support network. Mm. So my system um, came into focus during this season. Um, when COVID hit, it, um, it made everybody, for the most part, um, sit still in some way. Whether you're yes. essential, it modified your life, most likely. But for me, it made me sit still. And um, I came into this interesting season where I began to reevaluate my friends. Yeah. Friends. And um, the fortunate slash unfortunate reality is uh, my circle of friends is way smaller than it was in March. <laughs> <laughs> I can agree with that. Got a little bit tighter. <laughs> um, when you're living a busy life, um, you don't really stop to truly observe who's in your corner because everybody's moving. So if you touch bases here, touch bases there, it, it gives the illusion that the playing field is even. Mm. But when everybody has to slow all the way down and you realize your phone actually don't ring the way you thought it did because you were busy. Exactly. Or you're in a tough time and your phone don't ring or uh, people do not equally um, pour into you or encourage or motivate you the way you do them, you start looking at the world totally, totally, totally mm. different. And so I actually have been in a space right now where I realized um, I needed to look at my, my support network, see who was equally giving to me as I was giving to them. And so my encouragement to those of you out there is um, check your circle. Human beings are, um, we're created for community. 
we do better in community, actually. We don't, human beings actually don't do as well as you think they do in isolation. Some people think they do well. You actually don't. You'll do better in a community. Yep. Uh, that's the science of how we're made. And I think this is a good time to really check your community. Mm. And uh, my community wasn't healthy. And so I am, I'm presently still going through it and um, realigning my community, putting people in their respective places where they belong and yep. people who I didn't were closer to me, um, I've been able to kind of look at the, the full body and I really now have a better structured circle. So that's wow. been healthy. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's real good. That's good. Um, and how, how are you serving during this time? So kind of give people an understanding of maybe, hey, I, I need a therapist or I've been looking to transition from one to the other. Uh, I really like Brother Robinson's viewpoint. I really want to talk with him. Kind of give us some uh, context of what you're doing during this season and how maybe people could uh, contact you. Sure thing. So I, um, I do a lot of um, online um, events now. Um, and I actually like them. I, I think that this um, new online event format that people have been forced into, I think we're going to be doing it for now into the future. I agree. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Um, it's going to be a good alternative for people. And um, so I'm doing more mass outreach. Mm. Um, I do serve as a resource for individuals. Um, I do not have as many private clients anymore mm-hmm. um, because I was not able to manage doing the amount of events I'm trying to do and see as many clients at the same time. It became a little overwhelming for me. Yeah. And, Oh, if people want to reach out, of course, I can be a good resource um, to get you in the right direction, depending on where you're at in the country. Um, uh, and I periodically do have openings. If you're in the Dallas area, of course, um, I do have an agency, but I serve um, in more of an administrative capacity for my agency. Um, but all I can say is reach out um, because I will make sure uh, to the best of my ability that you do get the help you need either way. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, thank you, Brother Robinson. I appreciate you coming on. This has been amazing, man. Uh, uh, just you sharing your personal story, sharing uh, your experiences and what, how you, I think we're viewing this season from uh, the perspective of a black man. I think uh, this is something that's far overdue um, on this platform. And I wanted to bring you on for that. Thank you. Yeah, they hear me enough, man. (laughs) Um, So thank you guys so much for listening to this episode in particular. If you did enjoy it, please go ahead and rate and review for us. Let us know um, that you did listen by just a simple email or share it uh, through your social media platforms. All of Brother Robinson's information will be down in the show notes with him. Um, in any way possible. And just to say, hey, I listened to the episode. Um, I really enjoyed it. Can you maybe expound upon this? So any type of way, obviously you can see we're both receptive. So do so there. And um, thank you guys for listening again. You have a great evening, great day, great morning, whenever you listen to this. And we'll see you in the next one. Thank you. See y'all.